Sir Vance Pittman, that I think will rightly orient our minds as we continue our Lent series on the Ten Commandments. If you were lucky enough to watch the 2004 Summer Olympic Games in Athens, Greece, you probably remember swimmer Michael Phelps bursting onto the international scene. Phelps won six medals in those games, four gold and two bronze, to launch his career as the most decorated Olympic athlete in history. But when I think back to those games, I think of Matt Emmons. Emmons represented the United States in the three-position, 50-meter rifle event. And he was dominating the competition as he advanced to the final shot of his signature event. His combined score was so far ahead of the other shooters that all he had to do was hit the target. I don't mean he had to hit the bullseye. He just had to hit anywhere on the entire target to secure a victory. A sports writer named Rick Riley said it like this. With one shot to go in Athens, Emmons was on his way to a laughter of a win. In fact, all he had to do was hit the target. He said it would be like telling Picasso all he had to do was hit the canvas. And in preparation for the shot, Emmons pressed his cheek against the rifle's stock, sighted down the barrel through the scope. He took a breath, let it out, and squeezed the trigger. And the sound of the gun firing was unmistakable. But what happened next was shocking. You see, when you watch the sport of rifle shooting, a monitor focused on the target is always in the corner of the TV screen. And when a competitor takes a shot, that monitor almost immediately signals which part of the target was hit. And then a score is generated based on the quality of the shot. When Emmons lowered his weapon, he immediately looked to see where his bullet had struck the target. But there was no mark. And there was no score. Confused, he began talking with the judges, indicating that he believed he had hit the target. Why was there no score? Well, eventually, the lead judge picked up a microphone to explain. And he announced that Emmons' score was zero because of what's called a cross shot. The crowd gasped. Emmons lowered his head, obviously unable to believe what had happened. You see, a cross shot is when a shooter hits a target that's not the one he's supposed to be shooting at. At some point while going through his pre-shot routine, Matt had zeroed in on the target next to his. His zero score not only lost him the gold medal, he fell out of medal contention completely. My, Matt Emmons' story provides a great lesson for us. Always be sure you're aiming at the right target. So the question for us today is, are you aiming at the right target? You see, for a Christ follower, the target is always faith in Jesus Christ and nothing else. No other target. Listen to how Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Therefore, we must be so very careful to keep this singular 
target. Faith in Christ alone in our crosshairs. Because this world, even our religious world, in our own minds, will trick us into aiming at a target of works and law-keeping if we're not careful. So each week we are reminding you of this reality that the, so that the Ten Commandments have their proper place in their lives as a pointer to the true target, Jesus And as Carson helpfully reminded us last week, that when we have the right target, God's laws become good because they show us God's character. They reveal how far short we fall and how desperately we need His forgiveness. And they give us the shape of love that we offer Him in return of His love and forgiveness. So we love because He first loved us. 1 John 4, 19. And our great love for Jesus is in response to his great love for us. And that is our motivation for keeping the commands. When we read in passages like John 14, verse 15, If you love me, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So with our hearts and our minds rightly oriented at the correct target, I'd like to pray. As we begin to look at commands 6 through 8 of the Ten Commandments that direct our love of Jesus. So pray with me. God, as we look at your commandments, let us see your character. Reveal our desperate need for your grace and mercy. Shape the love we give back to you in response to the love you first gave us. And we pray all this in the name of our only Savior, Jesus. Amen. So the sixth commandment is no murdering. Exodus chapter 20 verse 13 says you shall not murder. Now if you memorize the Ten Commandments as a child, maybe in the King James Version, you will notice a slight difference here. Because it will read thou shalt not kill. But all other major translations use the word murder. Why would I bring this up? Because we need to know that the word used here most accurately refers to malicious or unlawful killing. Things like judicial killing and just war are not in view here. So this commandment directly speaks to the unlawful taking of human life, which murder most accurately depicts. And as we continue looking at this commandment, the words of J.I. Packard are very helpful when he writes that this commandment rests on the principle that human life is holy. First, because it is God's gift. And second, because man bears God's image. Human life is thus the most precious and sacred thing in the world. And to end it or direct its ending is God's prerogative alone. And we find both of these realities in the beginning pages of our Bibles in Genesis, which we just studied in a series as a church. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, we read, The Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And in Genesis 1, 27, we read that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. 
So life is holy because God is the life giver and we bear his image. And so as a result, we do not murder. We do not take the lives that he has given and the lives that bear his own image. Now, if you're anything like me, at this point, you're like, finally, a command that I've actually kept. At least I haven't murdered anyone. I'm actually good on this one. Well, before we let ourselves off the hook, Jesus has something to say to us. Listen to his words on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. You see, Jesus digs deep into the command to never murder and exposes its roots, roots of malice and anger and wrath and slander lie underneath the surface of murder. So Jesus, like a master horticulturalist, pulls up the weed of murder and exposes its roots. Who's off the hook now? Who among us can say that we've never had a malicious thought? That we've never insulted someone, whether in front of them or behind their backs, have never been angry? Now, Does Jesus' words sound just a little bit extreme to you? That Jesus would equate our anger with something that is serious as murder. How can Jesus make such a claim? Well, let's go back to the very beginning, to the very first murder recorded in Scripture. Cain's murder of Abel where we read in Genesis chapter 4, verse 8, And when they were in a field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. But before the murder itself, just three short verses prior, we read this in verse 4. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offerings, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. And listen to this. So Cain was very angry. And his face fell. You see, Jesus is simply interpreting Scripture for us. The Word Himself, the Word who was with God and the Word who is God and the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us is unpacking the Word of God. And He accurately unearths the root of murder, which is anger in a man's heart. James, the brother of Jesus, would put it this way in James chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. So the root cause of much of our fights and quarrels and murder is anger. Passions and expectations go unsatisfied and unmet and we become angry and either Wish or cause ill will against those whose lives are God's and bear his image. 
as Jen Wilkins puts it, the progression of sin that Jesus presents is that a negative emotion can lead to harmful thinking, to harmful speech, and to harmful actions. Now, to complete our understanding of this sixth word, the sixth commandment, we need to consider the comments of Christopher Wright in his commentary when he writes, this bears on all ethical matters in which human life is at stake, from its beginnings in the womb to its wanings in old age or terminal illness. And because many of us have been touched by the great tragedy of things like abortion and suicide and maybe even euthanasia, all of which are prohibited by this command. What Jesus would have you know is that he wants you to come to him. He says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. For those of us who have been indirectly impacted by such tragedies, Jesus invites you to come to him, to grieve in him, to find comfort in him, and to find rest in him. For those who may have broken this command, Jesus invites you as well to come to him, to simply repent and stop trying to work off your sin, to cease from carrying your own guilt and shame, to believe that he died for these sins just like all others, and to place your faith and trust in him as your only hope, your only solace, and you will find rest for your souls. As we read in Luke chapter 4, verse 17 through 19, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, given to Jesus, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The Apostle Paul would write it this way, For freedom Christ has set us free. So the sixth commandment does just what it should do. It points us to the true target, to the bullseye, to Jesus. Even in the one commandment that we thought we were okay in, we still need Jesus. And not only does Jesus offer salvation to us through faith in him, Jesus himself was murdered so that he could give life. He could give us an abundant life, an eternal life. And since we have been given this life by a murdered Savior, our loving response is not only to not murder, but to preserve life as well. To build up the lives of those around us. To show patience and kindness and gentleness instead of malice and slander and anger. To be like our Savior out of love for Him. Let's take a look at the seventh commandment. No cheating. Verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Did you know that 70, excuse me, not 75. Did you know that 25% of marriages see at least one incident of infidelity? 
And that percentage jumps to 45% when emotional and lesser sexual relationships are included. And with regards to the other forms of cheating, the majority of people polled also considered other actions cheating, such as these. Sending sexually explicit messages to someone other than your partner. Actively maintaining an online dating profile. Being emotionally involved with someone besides your partner. Sending flirtatious messages to someone besides your partner. Going out to dinner with someone that you are attracted to. And another troubling statistic to add to the mix, did you know that 42% of American Tinder users admit to being married or in a committed relationship while using the app? So what about you? What things do you consider cheating? What constitutes adultery in your mind? Is it the physical only? Or is it something more? Listen to what Jesus considered cheating again in his sermon on the mount. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 28. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Once again, Jesus digs deep into the commandments, this time the commandment to never cheat, and he exposes its ugly roots. Roots of lust and misplaced desirous intent lie underneath the surface of adultery. Jesus says that adultery starts with a look, a lingering gaze, a lustful double take. This is not simply recognizing beauty. No, it moves past recognition towards objectification and has consumption as its wicked, desirous end. Either consumption in the mind or in real life. The lustful look that Jesus so clearly condemns happens long before any physical act. Sure, you may not have ever physically cheated on your spouse, but what about your eyes? Where have they gazed? Where have they lingered? Have they lingered on inappropriate websites? Have they lingered on photos and videos on social media? Have they lingered on someone who is not your spouse? What about the Netflix, Hulus, and other platforms you use for entertainment? What about your mind's eye, your memory bank, your imagination? Do you allow past experiences or videos or images to run through your mind? Do you fantasize about other people, known or unknown? Do you read sexually explicit romance novels? You see, Jesus is concerned about what your eyes take in and what your mind embraces just as much as with what your body touches. Listen to how the Apostle Paul would put it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you obtain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this matter. 
because the Lord is an avenger in all of these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. You know, people always want to know what God's will is for their life. Well, we have a very explicit and clear answer to that question here. God's will for your life is that you will remain sexually pure. And to be clear, lust is not something to be tamed. It is something to be slain. Too many times I've heard from people that I counsel or people that I've been in small group with is that lust is something that they will just never have victory over until heaven. And I get what they're saying. I really, really do. It's hard to eradicate lust from your life. But it's not impossible. Luke 1, 37 says, For nothing will be impossible with God. Yes, in your own strength, in your own efforts, you might not experience victory. But in God's strength, you can. And God calls us to go to war against this sin. In Paul's war cry in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, when he writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which he says is idolatry. You see, God never calls us to do something that he does not empower us to do. And this is clear in Jesus' use of hyperbole to communicate the seriousness by which we, as his followers, should take in killing the sin of lust in our lives. When he finishes in Matthew chapter 5, 29-30, when he writes, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away from you. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away from you. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now Jesus does not literally mean for us to gouge our eyes out if we lust. He's using hyperbole. For the sad reality is, is that even if we actually removed our eyes, the images that our eyes have previously consumed would have created a permanent database a collection of perverse videos and images that we could replay at any moment in our minds. No eyes needed anymore. And as we've already mentioned, this is how many of us lust already anyway. So it is not ultimately the removal of eyes in a medical procedure that we need. It's actually a heart transplant. Ezekiel chapter 11 verses 19 and 20 say this, God says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. The scalpel that we need comes held in God's own fingers. The fingers that once wrote the Ten Commandments on stone tablets now uses those same fingers to remove stone, hearts of stone, and replace them with hearts of flesh. And you see, it's only when we allow God to place his scalpel upon our heart that we have the ability to slay the sin of lust and adultery. Will you allow God to touch your heart? If so, 
what you allow your eyes to gaze upon, what you allow your minds to dwell on, and what and who you allow your hands to touch will be transformed. With a transformed heart, our eyes move from the degrading and devaluing objectification of the human body to the upholding and beholding the image of God given to every human being. Our eyes move from beholding those who are not ours to beholding him and beholding the ones that he has given to us, our spouses. Our eyes move from beholding this kingdom to beholding his kingdom. And so again, this commandment points us to Jesus, the true target, the bullseye. You see, we embrace him who transforms our hearts. And as a result of our faith in him, he gives us new redeemed eyes that desire to behold the dignity of every person, to behold our Savior Christ, and to behold the kingdom of heaven. And with these realities in mind, it's good for us to remember the words of Job who made a promise with his own eyes when he wrote in Job 31.1, I make a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. How about you? Would you be willing to make the same commitment? We have one more commandment to look at today. We have looked at no murdering. We've looked at no cheating. And the eighth commandment is no stealing. Exodus chapter 20 verse 15 says you shall not steal. Now you may not be familiar with the great Brooklyn embezzlement case of 2018. It didn't happen in Brooklyn, New York. No, it happened in a small home in Lewisburg, North Carolina. Actually, it was my home with my daughter, Brooklyn. You see, Brooklyn got engaged and uh, as she's still living with us in our home, uh, we're planning for her wedding. Uh, and my wife says, Jake, you need to come into Brooklyn's bedroom. I said, okay. So I go into the bedroom. Shelly opens the closet. And there are stacks and stacks and stacks of things like razors, soap, uh, shaving cream, peanut butter, like a prepper's dream. Like everything you would need for the first year of the zombie apocalypse. You see, we share an online Walmart to-go pickup app where we could put our groceries in for convenience purposes that was linked to whose debit account? Mine. For supplies we needed for our home. And Brooklyn was slowly, over a long period of time, adding an item or two to that cart. Because I would bring the groceries home and she would put it up in her closet. Okay. My daughter was embezzling from her father and mother. She was stealing. Now this real life scenario is humorous and you might be thinking, well Jake, that's just simply cute. She's your daughter, she's still living in your home. That's not really stealing. Yes, it was. <laughs> she was taking Mason money for a Bowman home. But what is stealing really? It's funny to laugh at these things. Stealing is simply the taking of something that does not belong to you without permission. Sure, we like to minimize our theft to justify our actions, but it is stealing nonetheless. Whether you like to admit it or not, here are some of the ways that you might have stolen 
and broken this commandment. Listen and see if you might be guilty of any of them. These are the ways that we steal. We steal property, okay? These can be big things like money, electronics, and cars, down to little things like company pens, hotel robes, or even getting a water at a fast food restaurant and then going and filling it up with Sprite or 7-Up. We steal ideas, intellectual property, or we might take credit for someone's idea. We steal words, what we call plagiarism. This can be in written form, or it can even be done verbally when we don't cite sources in speeches or sermons. We can steal someone's identity. We can steal through tax evasion and fraud, withholding information from our tax returns so that we get a bigger return or have to pay less in in taxes. We steal time by not putting in a full day's work. We start work late, we finish early, we extend our coffee and lunch breaks, we take sick days when we're not sick, and we still get paid, and we spend oodles of time surfing social media when we actually have work that we could be doing. We steal through insurance fraud. Did you know that you could actually steal someone's affection? In the state of North Carolina, when one spouse cheats on another, it is called alienation of affections. So we can steal someone else's love. We steal by not paying our debts on time. There are whole accounting systems based on this. Accounts receivable aging and bad debts. Have you ever gotten a past due bill? We can also steal through the damage of another's property. Something as simple as going to the store in a parking lot, opening your door, dinging another car, and not leaving a note with your information on the windshield. And these are just some of the ways that we steal. Have you ever done any of these? If so, you have violated the Eighth Commandment. Now Jesus does not reveal the root underneath stealing in his Sermon on the Mount like he did the other two. But when we dig below the surface in the New Testament, we find that it is rooted in the principle of stewardship. The reality is everything that we have and everything another person has is ultimately God's. He has given to each person in each business that which he desires them to steward for his glory and for his purposes. 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 14 makes this clear. For all things come from you, God, and of your own we have given you. So when we steal, we are not only stealing from that person or that company, but ultimately God himself. So there is really no such thing as petty theft. The concept of stewardship is also found when the Apostle Paul challenges those who have learned the way of Christ to put off their old self and to put on their new self, which he says is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In Ephesians chapter 4, listen to what he has to say to thieves there in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. Notice that Paul just doesn't say stop stealing. That would only be half the work, the put off. There's a put on as well. So you see, the thief is to go out, get a job, and use a portion of his salary to help those in need. Do you notice the stewardship aspect here? His income is not only so that he doesn't need to steal anymore, but that he has resources To be generous to others. You see a taker transformed into a generous giver. 
the heart of stealing is that you are taking hold of that which is not ultimately yours. While the heart of stewardship is to give generously away that which you cannot ultimately hold on to. Another aspect of stealing that I'd like to mention today that uncovers the importance of this command is that it reveals whose we really are. Our true allegiances, our true identity. In John 10.10, Jesus says this, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Notice that Satan is the thief and Jesus is the generous giver. You see, who we most resemble reveals something about whose we are. Who are you most like? Now, one of the things that we have been doing through our Lent series on the Ten Commandments is using Martin Luther's model of the textbook, the hymnal, the journal, and the prayer book as a guide as we think through these ten words from God. You can see those books we've been using as an illustration for this particular aspect of our Lent series. We've already done much of this work uh, already today, but as a way to kind of bring it all together, I want to briefly look at each one of these. First, the textbook. How do these three commands give us instruction about God? You see, when we think about these commands, we primarily think of them on the horizontal plane, the, the love of neighbor commands. But it's interesting enough, as we've already seen and discussed today, that they have significant vertical aspects as well, our love of God. The sixth commandment to never murder is rooted in the reality that every human life is given by God and bears his image. So we are to steward the life that God has given us and the lives of those around us for his glory. The seventh commandment to never cheat was rooted in the reality that our bodies are not our own. Again, they are God's and they bear his image as 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 reminds us. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So instead of using our eyes, our minds, and our bodies to objectify and consume others' bodies, we glorify God by giving dignity to every person as His image bears. And the Eighth Commandment to never steal is rooted in the reality that every resource a person has has been given to them by God to steward for His glory. And when we think of this as a hymnal, how should we give thanks and praise to God? Well, as we realize that Jesus endured all of the things that these three words command against, that he was murdered, that he was cheated on, that he was stolen from, and all of this for our benefit, we cannot help but erupt in praise and thankfulness. And as we think of this, as a journal, how does this lead us towards repentance? First, we repent as we recognize that we have fallen woefully short of these commands. We may not have ever committed physical murder, but we have been angry. We have been malicious. We have lusted after others with our eyes and our minds, and we have stolen things, whether they were big or whether they were small. And we need to acknowledge this. Confess it to God and bear fruit worthy of 
that repentance. We also confess that Jesus was murdered and cheated on and stolen from all because of our sin. And so we repent knowing that Jesus is our Savior, our Rescuer, our only hope because He took the wrath of all who have broken these commands and would eventually place their faith and trust in Him as their Savior. And then lastly, we look at this from the aspect of a prayer book. How should we pray? Well, we're going to actually use Luther's prayer of these three commands as we pray together this morning. So pray these with me, please. Dear Father, lead us to an understanding of these sacred commandments and help us keep them and live in accordance with them. May you preserve us from the murderer who is the master of every form of murder and violence. May you grant us your grace that we and all others may treat each other in kindness, gentleness, and charitable ways, forgiving one another from the heart, bearing each other's faults and shortcomings in a Christian and brotherly manner, and thus living together in true peace and concord as the command teaches and requires us to do. We also pray for ourselves and all the world that you, God, may grant us grace to keep your commandment to never commit adultery gladly and cheerfully in order that we might ourselves live in chastity and also help and support others to do likewise. Lastly, we also ask you, Lord, to grant us and all the world grace to learn from your commandment to never steal, to ponder it, and to become better people so that there may be less theft, robbery, usury, cheating, and injustice, and that the judgment day for which all saints and the whole creation pray shall soon bring this to an end. Amen. Well, there's no better way to end this service than with the Lord's Supper. We began today recognizing that the true target that we are aiming for is Jesus Christ himself. And this is where Lent is designed to take us. It's designed to take us to Jesus, to our great need for him, to our great need for his atoning sacrifice on the cross that pays the unfathomable debt that we all owe as a result of our sin, to our great need for his resurrection that grants us eternal hope and life with him. For as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death for us until he comes. Now the table at North Wake is open to anyone who is willing to forsake their sins and have placed their faith in him, in him alone, the true target as their only savior. So we will approach the table by the two wall aisles in the center aisle Please be careful over here with the baptismal pool, and we will return to our seats at these two aisles. Also, if you are physically struggle to get to the tables, all you have to do is raise and wave your bulletin or your hand, and someone will bring the elements to you. But please approach the table, take the elements back to your seat, and I will come back up and lead us in the taking of the supper together as a church family.